Amen. I can't express how much I love singing that prayer with my church family. Might be one of my favorite songs of all time. What a, what a, what a blessing. And I echo, uh, I echo Jeremy's words, the, the faces that have returned today. What a blessing. I think of Paul when he, in Philippians 2 when he spoke about Epaphroditus and he urged uh, the church family that he was sending him to, to rejoice when you see him again. And uh, that's our hearts. Our hearts are full. Man, our hearts are full this morning. All right, well, let's read our uh, sermon text. We're moving into chapter 4 of 1 Peter this morning. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your precious, wonderful word. Give us understanding and discernment and insight this morning. Help us to understand what you're saying to us from these six verses. Renew our mind. Make us sober-minded about the times we live in. Thank you for your word that equips us to live in this world properly. So, Father, please give us ears to hear and hearts to joyfully embrace your words to us today. And we'll thank you for that with all of our hearts. Thank you for Jesus, the word made flesh. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Man, great to see you. Another Lord's Day. You let us live another week and we're together again. What a, what a blessing that is. I believe that the section of Scripture that we just read can be summed up in one statement. Can be summed up in one statement. And here is that statement. If you claim to be a Christian, then think and live like one for the glory of God knowing that those who persecute you because of your faith will ultimately answer to God. And your life will ultimately end well because you will live with God for all eternity. Okay, let's pray. No, just kidding, just kidding, okay? Uh, I want to take about uh, 35, 40 minutes maybe. 40 minutes or so, to unpack why that would be a good summary statement of the six verses we just read. So I hope you'll stick with me for that. 
Um, we're talking today about the arming ourselves with proper thinking uh, or the proper mindset of the Christian. And when we, when we consider this subject, the subject of proper Christian thinking, several uh, scripture passage, passages should come to our mind. Uh, here's a sampling. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot now, I'm tempted to launch into a little side sermon right there, because if you are here today, not a Christian, you're here today and you've not been born again, you're here today and you're, you've not been saved, you cannot do anything in your mind to make that happen. The mind, the fleshly mind does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is incapable. It cannot. God has to do something first. God has to gloriously and graciously and lovingly move on your heart and take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you can say yes to God. You can confess Jesus is Lord. But until God does that, you're totally at a loss. You're totally dependent upon God moving. The mind that's set on the, the fleshly mind cannot submit to God. That's one of the clearest statements in Scripture of the T in Tulip, the total inability of man, the total depravity of man. Okay, I, mean, I got to stop. Another verse that comes to mind when we think about thinking properly or the Christian mind is 1 Peter 1.13. We've studied it. In our study of 1 Peter, therefore, preparing your minds for action. So we're not just eggheads, you know, gazing at our navel and thinking big scriptural thoughts. No, we're preparing our minds for action, for living, and being sober-minded. We're serious about it. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 22 and 23, we have been taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We've referred to that scripture often in our history together. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this doesn't mean, like I said, just said a few seconds ago, we're not eggheads just sitting around thinking a bunch of noble biblical thoughts. But neither are we marshmallow Christians. Neither are we emotional patsies. There's a balance between the mind and the heart, the mind and the little s spirit, the mental aspect of who we are and the emotional aspect of who we are and the mental aspect of who we are 
rules and controls the emotional aspect of who we are. That's why this is so vital. This is so important. It's very clear. The Bible speaks often about our minds and the importance of thinking properly. Christians are called to be thinking people. As we've said many times from this pulpit, the mind is the gateway to our heart where life change happens. As we've said many times, even to the kids rockers, very recently, when the mind learns, the heart burns. What's that a reference to? Yes, you know, the Emmaus Road Disciples. After Jesus had explained to them the scriptures and how it all pointed to him and that everything that had happened was planned, that it had to happen. It was right on schedule. And then when he left them, they looked at each other and they said, were not our hearts burning when he explained the scriptures to us? So I say all that to say this as a reminder if, if, you, if you've never experienced the burning heart, whatever that means for you individually, the, the excited heart, the, the, the heart that just is just soaking up the things of God, the heart that is encouraged by Scripture, if you're not experienced that burning heart, then you're probably not learning anything. And you may not be a Christian. So the good news is today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Don't wait any longer. To get the burning heart that is controlled by a renewed mind. And here we see this once again. The emphasis on the mind. In verse 1, we are exhorted to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. With Christ-like thinking. This, This is the key verb of the entire passage. This verb kicks off these next few verses. It means to prepare. It's a military term. It literally means to arm oneself with the weapons, with weapons or to put on armor. The idea is a preparation for battle. And exa- and that is exactly what the Christian life is in this life. And I believe we will see that more and more in the days ahead. And I, will be, I believe it will become more and more heated. And sadly, the phony believers will fade away like the early morning fog. They will be like the faithless, idolatrous Israel whom God described like this in Hosea 13.3. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. In other words, I'll put it like this, and you can be sure of this. The phonies will fade when the fight gets fierce. You can mark it down. Please don't be a phony. Please make sure today you're not a phony. Please know that you're thinking right. You're you're growing in thinking right. We never think perfectly in this life, but we're growing in thinking biblically. And we are arming ourselves for the battle that we're in and the battle that is coming. When we think about arming ourselves, 
what immediately comes to to my mind is Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 6 that most of us are probably very familiar with. In verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he lists the different pieces of our spiritual armor that enable us to stand firm, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Chuck Swindle said this, quote, Peter's point is clear. Christ has not sent us into the world as vacationers on a self-guided tour of a playground, but as soldiers on a tour of duty in a battlefield. We are not called to kick back, relax, take in the scenery and wait for our guide to take us home. Rather, we are engaged in a fierce conflict on foreign soil. We need to arm ourselves with spiritual armor to withstand the temptations of this world. And I say amen to that. So back to our text. What is this, what is this same way of thinking? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Well, what, what phrase came before that? Well, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And that connects back to things he said earlier in chapter 3 about suffering and about the... the uh, a uh, pretty good chance that Christians are going to suffer in this life. So be ready for it. So what is this same way of thinking? Let's try to fo- follow Peter's line of thought here. He tells us that Christ suffered in the flesh. Jesus knew that that was a major part of his calling from the Father. He knew that he had to suffer for his people. He knew that in order to be obedient to his father, he had to have this selfless mindset of not considering equality with God something to be grasped, of making himself nothing, of taking on flesh, of uh, being obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He knew he had to lay down his life for his sheep. He was talking about that in John chapter 10. He was telling his disciples about that and everybody that would hear that, he, that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, his people, to fulfill his father's plan and to glorify God. And we are instructed to arm ourselves with this same way of thinking, to prepare ourselves for life in this sin-cursed world by thinking the same way Jesus did. Or as Paul would say in Philippians 2.5, we're to have the mind of Christ, the mind of humble selflessness that will often lead to suffering. Isn't that what got Peter so upset? Remember when Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, and guess what? You've got to take up your cross and follow me. And Peter, no, 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 never, never. No, no, that'll never happen. Get behind me, Satan. 
At that point, even before the crucifixion, Jesus is telling his followers, you're going to have to take up a cross. You're going to have to think like me. You're going to have to be ready for that. You've got to arm yourself with this way of thinking. And in the text before us this morning, this proper mindset affects the way we look at three aspects of the Christian life. It affects our exclusive reason for living, the expected reaction of the lost, and the exhilarating reward of the, of the Lord. Let's look at these one at a time. Number one, regarding our exclusive reason for living, which is to glorify God. We must honor God. That's verses 1 to 3. Peter tells us here in verses 1 to 3 that we honor God in four ways. First, by not giving in to sin. All right, let's look at the end of verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, here's the phrase. And, you know, we thought we was getting out of the hard stuff at the end of chapter 3, you know, and the spirits in prison and all that stuff. Well, look at this. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what in the heck does that mean? Has anybody in here ceased from sin? No, none of us has ceased from sin. Specific sins. None of us has ceased from specific acts of sin. But most of us probably have suffered in some way. So, but it says whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what are we talking about here? What does this mean? Does it mean if we, if, we, if we suffer, we'll stop sinning? Well, no, it obviously doesn't mean that. Does it mean if we think right, if we arm ourselves with the proper thinking, if we think right about the need to suffer and the, the high probability that we will suffer, will we stop sinning? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Remember Scripture, interpret Scripture, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we're not going to stop sinning on this planet. Here's one possibility. The phrase suffered in the flesh, as we saw earlier in the letter, is an alternative phrase, phrase for dying. When we die, we have obviously ceased from sin. Hallelujah. Okay? So that's a possibility. In fact, I think that's John MacArthur's view. Man, I love John MacArthur, and, and he's taught me so much more. He's so much smarter than me, but I don't think that's what it's saying here. Why? Because verse 2 begins with the phrase, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. So Peter's talking about living. He's talking about living. He's not talking about dying. He's talking about arming yourself to live in this life, in the flesh, okay, and how to live with sin defeated. There, there's no need to arm ourselves with proper thinking after we die, right? We'll be like Jesus. We, we will be like, when we see him, we will be as he is. There'll be no longer any need to fight this fight of thinking properly. And it is a fight. And you know it is. We all know it is. The reason why the fight is so hard for some of you, and, or harder... It's because you don't spend enough time fighting, killing sin, mortifying the flesh, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. 
It's a constant struggle. It's a constant battle. It's a constant fight. But as you grow, you'll get, there's joy in the fight. That doesn't mean it's a negative thing. It's a good thing. It's a good fight. It's a joyful fight. So here's an alternative translation, and here's where, it's what I think Peter is saying. We'll find out when we get to glory, okay? Now, we know we're not going to cease from sin on this planet, so we know that's not a, a, a translation for it. it. It could mean, it could be talking about when we die, we'll cease from sin. Don't think that's what it is because Peter's talking about living. Okay, here's an, here, here's an alternate uh, possibility based on an alternate translation of the phrase. Instead of has ceased from sin, it could be a, a, an acceptable translation is has finished with sin. Has finished with not a specific sin, but with the principle of sin. You finished with sin. Are you with me? you got to work now. And you, you're always good at working with me. And I praise the Lord for that. So you got to work with me now. You finish. In other words, we're done with it. We're done with it. We're done with it. Let me give you, try to illustrate this, okay? Let's say you come to, you're having a discussion with someone, bordering on an argument, okay? You're having this conversation, and you're in a disagreement, and you come to a point where you're just at total loggerheads in the, in the discussion. There's no settling it. There's no coming to an agreement. And you say, okay, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. There's nothing else I can say. Nothing else. I'm done with this. I think this is what the phrase is pointing to. In other words, we've made the ultimate break with sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Yes, we still c commit specific sins and will continue to do that until God takes us to glory. But they no longer dominate us. They no longer dominate us. Simon Kistemacher makes this point very well. He says, quote, when the believer identifies completely with Christ, in other words, they're born again, they're saved, he knows that he is done with sin. This means that the last few words of verse 1 apply to the Christian whose life is firmly established in Christ. The follower of Christ has abandoned a life of sin because the ruling power, key phrase, the ruling power of sin has been broken. When you got saved, beloved, that's what happened to you. And we're going to read about that in just a minute. That's what happened to you. The ruling power of sin, the dominion of sin over you was broken, was demolished, was destroyed by the precious blood of Jesus. Continue with the quote. Granted that he is unable to live a perfect life, the believer, however, is free from the dominance of sin. Are you with me? With me on that? Are you following this? Well, if you're, let's throw in some Greek grammar here. Oh, no, Greek grammar. Here we go. But it, it's a perfect passive indicative verb. Well, so what? So what? Well, let's try to see the so what. Perfect tense. Perfect tense in the Greek sees an action as having been completed in the past with lasting results. Every one of us here that's saved was saved in the past, Right? You were saved at some point. 
Now, we're praying some of you will get saved in the present, like right now. But everybody that's saved here was saved in the past. Our break with sin happened in the past when we were saved. And in reality, it happened further back than that, maybe about 2,000 years ago. It happened at the cross. When we were, listen, in the spiritual realm, crucified with Christ. We're going to read about that in just a minute. Okay, our break with sin happened in the past at the cross and then when God called, him, called us to himself. The lasting results are our justification and our sanctification. Justification being a one-time act by God and then our sanctification, a progressive act by the Holy Spirit as he conforms us into the image of Jesus and ultimately heaven with God. So the perfect tense of the verb points to that. Our break with sin happened in the past. We have lasting results. Sanctification and ultimate glorification. Passive voice represents the subject as receiving the action. In other words, we did not accomplish this break with sin. We didn't do it. Remember, we couldn't. We just talked about that. Romans 8, the mind of the flesh cannot break with sin. It cannot submit to God. God's got to do something. That's why we're passive. We didn't accomplish this break with sin. Christ did it to us and for us. Isn't that great news? Beloved, this is the gospel in its purest form. Our liberation from sin is the work of God and not ourselves so that no one can boast. Nobody's going to be walking through the gates of heaven boasting that they made the right decision or that they figured it out. No, we're going to be falling down on our face thanking God that we're there. Praise the Lord. Yes, pray with me. Thank God. I see some of your mouths moving. Thank God with me right now. It's a work of God. We're passive in it. Theologians call it the, a monergistic work of God. It's God working alone on the heart of every believer that he's chosen from the foundation of the world. Indicative mood makes a statement of fact. A statement of fact. It does not depend one iota on how you feel or how I feel. When we commit a sin, we don't feel like we have ceased from sin, that, we've, that we're done with it. No, we feel terrible, and that's a good sign. If you don't feel bad about it, that's a bad sign. But because of the blood of Jesus and its purchase of our forgiveness, and because God opened our heart to believe the message of the gospel, our break from sin is a done deal. It's done. It's a fact. It's an indicative fact. You with me? It's not a command. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative. It's done. God has done it. And as God sanctifies us, we will live out our break with sin better and better day by day. Let's hear Paul talk about it, okay? Let's go to Romans chapter 6. I want you to follow along with me. I'm, just going to, I'm not going to make a lot of comment. I just want to get Paul's, this is, this is hammering the nail of truth in from another angle, okay? Let's hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. This is exactly what Paul is, is, is talking about. Let's do some corporate pondering here of these first 14 verses in Romans chapter 6. 
He's answering the question, okay, well, if God's done it all and you're forgiven and God loves to forgive, just sin up a storm. You don't have to be done with sin because it's all forgiven. Just keep sinning. Let's listen to Paul's response. You're familiar with this, but it's good food for the soul to look at it again, right? Amen. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Why? Why? Stop right there. Why? Well, because of what Peter's just said. You're done with it. You're finished with it. Okay? How can we, how can we who died to sin, another way of saying we've ceased, right? Another way of saying we're done with sin. We've died to sin. We've died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. By baptism into death, in order that, purpose clause, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And what's the dominant theme of that new life? Done with sin. We're finished with it. It's not our master anymore. We don't have to yield to it anymore. We have the power to fight it and resist it. Hallelujah. I just can't get over this. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, we know, indicative, we know that our old self, who we used to be, was crucified with him in order that, purpose clause, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is that phrase? Another way of saying what Peter's just said. You ceased from sin. What's another way of saying that, Paul? Okay, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Isn't the Bible beautiful? Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love the Word of God? Don't you love the many different ways it says the same thing, which helps us to learn? And to grow and to have the proper mindset. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing. Another way of saying, you've you've ceased from sin. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Another way of saying it. How awesome is this? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. There's another way to say it. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will, we, we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Died one time for all his people. So that we could cease from sin. Man, it's just too good. How can you reject the gospel? How can, you, how can you reject the gospel? How can you sit there if you, if you have the mental capacity of knowing what's going on and reject the gospel? Well, we know the theological answer to that. You might not be chosen, but we're not going to go there this morning. We're going to pray that every one of you gets saved today. That's not, that's not a Christian yet. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, here it is must consider yourselves dead to sin. Done with it. Done with it. Finished with it. Ceased from it. That's exactly what Peter is saying, I think. I think that's what Peter is saying. 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For, here it is, crowning statement, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin is no longer your ruler. Jesus is your best friend and king, friend of sinners. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Beloved church family, embrace this with everything that you are. And thank Jesus constantly. So, Peter, as Paul's fellow apostle, is simply reminding us that we are dead to sin. That sin is not our master. So don't give in to it. Fight it. Mortify it. Put it to death. We've ceased from being under its dominion. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And one of the major proofs that we have ceased from sin is that we are willing to suffer for the gospel. That's the connection here that Peter's making. This is one of Peter's major points, not only here, but throughout the entire letter. Bob Utley says it like this, quote, The whole point is that as believers follow Christ's example of suffering, so too his example of victory over sin. We are new creatures in Christ. We must live like it. Christ's likeness is the will of God. Amen. So secondly... Secondly, okay, we're looking at four ways we honor God. Uh, we honor God by not being controlled by human passions. Because these last three points under this, under this major point will not be as long as that first one. Because we had to understand the theology of ceasing from sin and what that means, okay? We had to get that. We're, we're, we're done with it because we're no longer under the dominion of sin, okay? We honor God also by not being controlled by human passions passions. Okay. Back away from Romans 6 now, back to 1 Peter 4. Look, look at my, my first Peter page is about to fall out here. I'm just I, becoming troublesome there. Um, okay. For, for, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time. See, Peter's talking about living. He's not talking about dying, ceasing from sin because you, you've died. He's talking about living. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. We honor God when we're not controlled by human passions. Don't live for him anymore. Don't live for him anymore. We saw it in verse 12 of chapter 6. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. See, it's still a fight. Even though sin has been defeated and taken off the throne of our life, it's still a fight for us because we live in this body of flesh where sin dwells in our members, okay? It's still a battle. Paul wants us to make sure of that. Peter wants to, us to be sure of that. We can't just kick, kick back and say, okay, spirit, do it. We, it it's, it's a, this is a synergistic work, a cooperative work. The Holy Spirit empowering us and us living it out. Paul said it beautifully in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So 
Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This honors God. Third, we honor God by focusing on obeying the will of God. End of verse 2. Don't live any longer for the flesh, but for the will of God. Live for the will of God. Your focus now is not obeying sin like it was before Jesus came into your life. Now your focus is on obeying God. How do you, do, how do you know what to do? Well, right here, that's why, we're in, that's why this book is open. The primary evidence that we've ceased from sin is that we live to obey the will of God. Jesus is our Lord now, and not ourselves, not sin, not anyone else. Jesus is our Lord. And fourth, we honor God by no longer living as a lost person. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, and the rest, that, law, that list. We're not going to focus on the list this morning. A lot of the commentaries like to focus on each word. Of the, I don't want to focus on the list. I just want to focus on the main things, okay? We honor God when we quit living like a lost person. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. Now, this is an inter- interesting phrase. The time that is past, what's that? Well, that's the days of our lostness. The days of of our lost condition. Then it says, suffices. In other words, we've had enough of living as a lost person. See, ceasing from sin, being done with sin, goes hand in hand with this. I'm done with living as a lost person. Hopefully, sometimes it it flares up, you know, more than I would want it to. It's true for all of us. Don't look at me so spiritual, okay? It's true for all of us. But we're done your, our mindset, should, remember, we're talking about thinking. Our mindset should, set should be, I don't want to live like a lost person anymore. God help me. That's the proper thinking. That's how we should arm ourselves. Because we've had sufficient time for that. It's over. It's done. We've had enough of that. We've had enough of living in sin. We've had enough of living separated from God and his people. That time of our life is sufficient. In other words, it's enough. It's enough. Whether it's 27 years like mine or 10 years like some of the young ones or whatever, whenever you were saved, your time as a lost person is sufficient. It's done. You've had enough of it. You don't want to live like that anymore. Let's try to illustrate this. Have you ever had an experience uh, that you were just elated to be over with? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You were just so glad that was maybe a kidney stone. Ugh. Oh, man. Just so glad you were. You've had, you've had them, right? You know what I'm talking about. My, my year at Alpha School. I remember that dominated the pulpit for that year I was at Alpha School. I was always, whoa, man. Falling from a ladder. That, boy, I'm glad that's done. You know, uh, you know what? The, 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 I love the joke that you know, what the Calvinist said after he fell off the ladder. Man, glad that's over with. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, a rough job experience. I know some of you have had a rough job experience. You know, but when those times are, when that kidney stone is over, man, nobody's saying, man, I wish I could go back to that kidney stone. I wish I could go back to that pain. Man, I wish I could climb up that ladder again and re- re- do that fall again. That was really great. 
No, nobody says that. Well, that's what Peter's saying here. You're done with the sinful lifestyle of ignoring God and dishonoring him and, and, and staying away from church or whatever. And you're done with that. You're not going back. You've had sufficient time of that. You're not going back to the B.C. time of your life, B.C. before Christ. I was listening to Alistair Begg this week. I always like to weigh in on what Pastor Alistair's saying about the verse we're studying. And uh, he, he points out that our lives are like uh, historical timelines. We have a B.C. part and an A.D. part, okay? B.C. represents our, the time on our time, life timeline before Christ took over our heart. Our lost days, that's our B.C. time. And then A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord, our lives with Christ as Lord. I don't know about you, but I have no desire whatsoever to go back to B.C. No desire. I love being in A.D. time on my personal timeline. I love my life under the Lordship of Christ. And that's the way you should be thinking Arm yourself with that way of thinking. Spurgeon said this, There is no man whom God has converted by his grace who wishes that he had spent more of his life in sin. Nobody wishes that. No true Christian wishes that. Second aspect of life, the last two aren't as long as the first one, regarding the expected reaction of the lost. We see that in verses 4 and five. With respect to this, they, the lost, your lost friends, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So, proper way of thinking when it comes to how the lost react to your new life in Christ, just know, know, have it in the forefront of your mind, they will ultimately answer to God. They will answer to God. Lost people will be surprised when they discover that you take holiness and purity and righteousness seriously. They will be surprised when they see that your desire to live for the glory and honor of God is a reality. Swindoll said this, quote, when we don't conform, they notice. When we allow our transformation to play out on the stage of life, we will stand out from the rest of the crowd by the fact that we don't participate in their self-indulgent escapades. And then oftentimes, it goes beyond just, you know, being surprised. Their surprise will turn to insults. Bible, the Scripture says they will malign you. They will malign you. They will slander you. They will speak evil of you. And in, day, in our day and time, they will attempt to cancel you, right? They will try to cancel you. Well, Jesus didn't use the word cancel, but isn't that basically what he told us? If they hated me, they will hate you. And we could carry it, I think, a little even further. If they crucified me, they will try all different kind of ways to crucify you as well. They despise us for our lives remind them that God does have a standard for living, a righteous standard. And they don't want to be reminded of that. They hate that. So their ultimate hatred for God will be directed at us. David Ham, the commentator, wrote, Luther was right. The pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven breathing down his neck. 
He feels crowded by holiness, even if it is only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. People like us, people like you and me, regular Joes, Molly Mundane, and, 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 and just regular people. Spurgeon says, what a strange world this world is. It speaks evil of men because they will do not do evil. But take heart, beloved. Their day of accounting is coming. As Peter says in verse 5, they will give account to God. Let's bring in Brother Paul again. He says it even more plainly and more explicitly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. There's, our, there's Peter's theme of suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Our suffering might, will be now, but it will be temporary and it will end. Their suffering will be eternal. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. They've got it, they think they've got it going so good right now making fun of Christians and canceling Christians and blah, blah, blah. But if they stay like they are, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. That's us. And to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. In other words, the great day of reckoning is coming. And on that day, all the poor, unsaved people will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Finally, real quick, the third aspect of our life that we need to think properly about is the exhilarating reward of the Lord. We will live with God. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, a lot of people make a, a serious flaw here. They take that verse and they connect it back to the difficult verses we saw in chapter 3 about preaching to the spirits of prison. They say, look, he is preaching to the dead. No, he, that's not what it's talking about, okay? Peter is referring to people who are now dead but who received the gospel when it was preached to him. He's talking about dead uh, saved people. Dead saved people. Okay? This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In other words, these people were alive at one time. The gospel was preached to them. They were judged in the flesh. What does that mean? They died. They died. The what, physical death. The wages of sin is death. You're gonna, every one of us, we're going to experience this. We're going to be judged in the flesh. We're all going to die physically. 
But now they are living in the spirit with God. In other words, they're in that intermediate period before they receive their glorified body. They're living in the spirit with God. The gospel was preached to them. They died. Now they're living in the spirit with God. MacArthur says this, quote, Peter's point is that believers, even under unjust treatment, including death, should be willing and unafraid to suffer, knowing that all death can do is triumphantly bring their eternal spirits into everlasting life in heaven. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So let's wrap it up. One day, one day, if Jesus doesn't return first, every one of us will experience what these people that Peter was writing to experience. We will be judged in the flesh. In other words, we will die. We will die. Every one of us. It's appointed man to die once. You know, when we hear of when we hear of old friends or distant family members dying, often the first question is something like this. Well, how, how did they die or, or what was their cause of death? R.C. Sproul cuts right to the chase. I love it. He says this, when the Bible speaks of people's dying, it is somewhat reductionistic. From a biblical standpoint, there are only con- two conditions in which someone dies, in the faith or out of the faith. We die in faith, which is a good thing, or we die in sin because we never ceased from it. And that's a bad thing. That's a terrible thing. That ushers, ushers you into what Paul called in the verse we read from 2 Thessalonians, eternal punishment. So if you died today, What would be your condition? In faith? Good thing? Or in sin? Because you never broke with it. You, you, You never were born again. The good news is today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the Apostle Peter, and thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired him to write these words to us. We pray, God, that we've unpacked them in a way that would honor you and edify your people and grow your church and maybe even draw someone to faith. We ask for the salvation of those who don't know you yet. Please open their hearts. Open their hearts. And renew their minds that they may may begin to think properly and to arm themselves with proper thinking. They may grow in the grace and knowledge of the wonderful Lord Jesus. We, Father, we thank you now for this time at the table of grace where we commune with you and with each other. We pray you bless this time. Thank you for Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen.